Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on February 24th, 2021. And this is such a super special episode. It is our 100th episode and we have some of our favorite, favorite guests and crime experts. You're all part of the crime family. I'm so glad you could all manage to be on all at once. Lewis texted me last night, said, this is this thing is like a town hall. There are so many people. <laughs> I said, like, yes, it is. Okay, let's introduce everyone. You all know each other, which is marvelous. We have former prosecutor Lonnie Coombs. Hi, Lonnie. Welcome back. Hi, Anna. It's great to be here. Forensic neuropsychologist Dr. Judy Ho always leads us and keeps us grounded. Criminal defense attorney Allison Treasel and former homicide detective Louis Bolaños. Welcome, all of you. I love you all. You're just like magnificent human beings. And what I love is that we have crime completely covered. Defense attorney, detective, former prosecutor, <laughs> and neuropsychologist. If you That's guys- That's it. Right? That's all you need. And congratulations to you, Anna. What an amazing accomplishment. And thanks for having us here. Oh, thank you. I didn't start this podcast, so we have a special at the very end. The person who did launch this podcast 100 episodes ago, Owen Michael, is going to join us for the comments section. So it really is going to be great. And as I look at all of you and I think about all of us discussing this, I'm like, I see a television show here, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I see something fun. All right, let's get to the cases. All right, enough about us. Let's get to the cases. The body of Alexis Murphy has been found seven years after her disappearance and six years after her killer was convicted. He was convicted even though there was no body. Those are really tough cases. So I'm fascinated about whether this will have any implications on that conviction. But first, an ex-cult leader has been sentenced to 30 years in prison for their starvation and medical abuse of two children back in the 1980s, okay? How freakish is this? 79-year-old Anna Young, also known as Mother Anna, I hate the idea of calling her that if you've ever abused a child, but Mother Anna, as she was known, was charged with second-degree murder in the death of Emin Moses Harper, 
Moses, as he was called, was between two and three years old. His mother gave him to the House of Prayer for All People. That was the name of the cult in Florida. It was in Micanopy, Florida. And Moses died somewhere around 1988 after he was locked in a closet and deprived of food and water for an extensive period of time. And his remains have never been found. This, this is, I mean, Judy, when I, I heard this, I thought of you immediately. It's like, this is a total Dr. Judy case. Yeah, you know, it's just so, so sad, even as you're starting to just dig into the details of, you know, where this is going to go and the types of things that have just been going on for God knows how long at this point before finally this was revealed. I, I mean, it does not feel like this is something that just happened all of a sudden. It seems like there was a systematic approach here. Absolutely. Uh, the remains of the baby have not been found, but members of the cult of the cult told authorities that he died from this abuse of lack of nutrition and that apparently Young ordered the body to be burned in a barrel. And this was all part of releasing the demons in them. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know, Lonnie, you've seen cases like this before where the the reason is always save the child, save the family from the demon, but it's insanity. It's evil. Well, it's evil. And, and you know, when they couch it in the religious terms, you know, and then they say, this is my religion, this is how we're practicing our religion, that's sort of the defense that they put up. But anyone looking at this and when you see the whole picture of the pattern of abuse that she was doing to multiple children these children would be brought to her to to be taken care of and we're talking about two and three-year-old children i mean these are just babies and the things that she was doing to them there's there's no justification for it absolutely not do you think allison that because this case is really so old and you actually don't even have a body here she actually entered a plea she finally agreed she was going to contest and then she finally said okay, fine, you got me. But the fact that people kept her secrets for so long. Well, first of all, what's incredible is she finally was caught and prosecuted because her own daughter turned her in. But, you know, I want to tell you, Anna, something, and it involves Lonnie. So 20-something years ago, one of the first cases I ever handled was a case out of Malibu, and Lonnie was the deputy in charge at the DA's office at the time. And, Lonnie, do you remember the uh, the Asian preacher and the, the husband that stomped the wife mm-hmm. to death to get the spirits out of her. Do you remember that? And yeah. I'm going to throw it to Lewis because immediately, you know, their defense that it, it was a religious uh, service and ceremony that got, that went very badly. And immediately the police were on it. Immediately they were charged. And the jury, as Lonnie knows, was like, uh, no way. Uh, you cannot hide behind any religious practices. That's not the way murder charges go. But Lewis, there was immediate police involvement. And that was 25 years ago. And I'm just so curious. There were something like 20 plus cult members. How come the police were not involved in any of these disappearances or deaths? I don't get it. Yeah, you know what? Things like that still happen today. I mean, that scenario, it, it takes someone to observe something like a neighbor or uh, uh, it could be someone living next to you. I, I guarantee you, and there's somebody watching this podcast or listening to it or will be shortly in the future, more than one, who has a suspicion of these type of activities going on next door to them or down the street and are on the fence of whether or not to make that phone call. These things aren't, th- these 
organizations, cults, whatever you want to call them, and a lot of them are de- don't even meet the threshold of being a cult. The activity is still there. The behavior, the abusive behavior is still there. It takes a community to sometimes identify these type of places, much like the one in um, Paris, uh, Riverside County, with the Turpins, right? Oh, after, my God. After those two, I, I didn't want to call them mom and dad, but the two suspects in that case, after they were arrested and it came to fruition, what they had done, because one of the victims, one of the children had run away, the neighbors came out of the woodwork saying, you know, I saw this and I saw that and that rang a bell. And, you know, so I, I think that's one of the reasons that these things just don't get mm-hmm. uh, brought to the front because people don't want to ring that bell because they're worried that they might be wrong. So what I say to folks like that, if you have a suspicion about a neighbor as you're watching this program or someone who lives down the street where you think the children might be at risk for whatever reasons or raising flags or concerns to you, to call law enforcement, share your concerns with them. Police get check the welfare calls almost on a daily basis. And that's exactly what they do. They encourage those calls. They'll go down there and do an investigation and see if there is something there that's not ringing true, if there's something to that type of call. But I I guess I just want to get the point across that if you call and police respond and it turns out to be nothing, that's okay. You are not wasting law enforcement's time. They want want to embrace those calls. Please call if you suspect something like that because the alternative is, is just unacceptable. Lewis, you're making such a good point because I have seen this multiple times where maybe people cite that it's none of their business or that maybe they'd feel embarrassed if they were wrong. And I think that that's part of also our societal values. You know, we're in America. This is an individualistic society. We kind of say, well, you know what? Those are people's business. I don't want to be in the middle of that. You know, I don't want them to feel like I'm overreaching, but I'm so glad that you're putting that message out there because it is important and it's not like they're going to get in trouble. And the worst thing that happens, you're a little embarrassed. Okay. Okay. Maybe I was off, but the best thing that happens is you could save lives. I mean, that is what's on the line here. So thanks for saying that. Can I ask a question to Judy? So Dr. Ho, what what fascinates me about this case, there are bad people in the world, but what fascinates me is that in her cult structure, she literally separated the children from the mothers. And there's a, there's a, this, that part of the case was that she put one of the children in bleach. Mm. What is the psychology behind the, the parents, especially the mothers, that would allow, that would give up that much control to this cult leader? Well, it's such a great question, Allison. And I think that from the outside, sometimes it looks inexplicable to us, but this isn't something that happened over the course of a day. It was very systematic where it's in general, the part of the grooming process where they start to separate the parents from the children. They lavish a lot of attention and positive attention on both the parents and the children at first. And then there's a lot of secret keeping. But at that point, once you've gone down that path, you have been convinced that this is a leader. This is somebody who actually, whatever doesn't look like it makes sense that you trust them, but that didn't happen overnight. And the separation is there so that essentially the children can't communicate to the parents what's actually going on. And the parents don't really have their own eyes on it and have to trust this leader now they have now come to essentially respect and admire. And this is one of the worst things in terms of the age range that she's targeting, but this isn't actually that unique either. 
these are toddlers. How much can they even really communicate about the abuses that they are suffering to their parents? And I believe that that is extremely deliberate. She's not picking 18 year olds. She's not picking 15 year olds. She's picking two to three year olds. And additionally, uh, I'm sorry, one of the things in the case is that some of these mothers had issues where they were unable to care for their young children and they were struggling themselves. And this woman was running a boarding house as part of the cult in the church. So they felt that they were doing the best they could in other issues like that 12-year-old girl that you mentioned, Allison, who was dunked in a tub of Mm. bleach to get the evil and the devil out of her, she had behavioral problems, which her Mm -hmm. parents thought somehow in this boarding school and situation, she might actually get help. But that was not, that was not it. And this is why she leans on the religious institution or at least a religious idea. It's kind of like a powerful other that if the parent doesn't trust her, she can say, oh, but God wants this. You know, if you really follow the, you know, God's teachings, this is going to be what benefits your child and your family. And and I think the interesting thing, too, about that 12-year-old, that was back in 1992, actually. And that's what shut down the cult because she was actually charged in that case. And it's probably because the child was old enough to explain to her parents what was going on. They actually made a charge. She was charged. She was convicted. And then she took off. She disappeared Mm -hmm. with her daughter for years and she was on the FBI's most wanted list. And that's how they found her in 2001. And she was only sentenced to 100. Well, she ended up serving 192 days in jail. That's it. And then she was out again. And the real warriors, the heroes in this case, are those children. They're now coming forward. They're in their 40s and 50s now. And they're coming forward. Their parents may not have come forward, but they're coming forward after a dealing with all this childhood trauma and they're talking to law enforcement and my guess is that's why she finally ended up pleading no contest because I think we know some of the evidence but we don't know all of the statements that have come out from all of these victims who are finally coming forward and saying something has to be done I think that's what finally brought her down I think so in fact let's get into some of the facts of the case do a little bit of a deep dive so Anna Young who was the cult leader. She was indeed turned in by her daughter. She was arrested in 2016. This is on the latest charges. And her daughter is Joy Fluker. So WCJB TV in Gainesville, Florida, which by the way, is my very first reporting job. (laughs) I know it's off topic, but but it's like, what? (laughs) That that was when I first became a reporter. Anyway, they reported that Anna Young was also accused of manslaughter in the 1983 death of three-year-old Katonia Jackson. Now, she died after being denied medication for seizures that may have been caused by the physical abuse. Now, at first, this is what's bizarre. The mother was initially believed to be responsible for the child's death, right? So Mm. here's a mom who at first appeared to be wrongly accused, and thank goodness, because of all the others stepping forward, there will be justice for this this baby who died back in 1983. Joy, who is the daughter, told the court that she decided to report her mother after being haunted for decades by what she said she saw at the House of Prayer, including the final moments of Moses' life. And what's really interesting is apparently, you know, after Mother Anna uh, reinvented herself, the daughter who had a child of her own started freaking out that she was mm. going to do something to her own child, right? And, and she was like, that's it. I'm turning you in, mom, um, w- which is part of why she made the decision here. 
I want to reference how this all began because you all are going to jump in here like crazy because because you're so good at what you do. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has an exceptional piece of investigative reporting called Mother Anna Unmasked. And this is like her whole story. So her first crime that we can possibly maybe figure out goes back to 1973. Anna Young's stepdaughter mysteriously disappears in Chicago in 1973. And that's when Anna and her husband moved south to become these religious fanatics. Okay. Mm -hmm. How weird is that? That little girl was never found. I think Chicago is going to open up that case now. So they moved to Florida. At, at the most, they never had more than 25 members in this cult. They asked their followers for money, all of their money. They had the boarding school. And they handled behavioral issues with this starvation, right, with the beatings. And then this, I, I want to hear from you, Allison, on this one. Then in 1988, this is before, right, the other abuse cases come to light. Anna's husband Robert Davidson is found crushed to death under a Ford pickup truck near a junkyard. The medical examiner says it appeared to be accidental. Um, well, I, if I'm the defense attorney, I thank him for getting it so very wrong. Okay. I mean, things like that just don't happen. And usually when you have a person who um, who is commits lots of crimes as this woman has there's no coincidence around her every every crime every death will be related to her they 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 really uh for years and years they just didn't investigate her the way they should have and that's why i said that to lewis i mean this she some you talk about under the radar cases she was under the radar but in living in plain sight for years doing really horrible things and let's say he objected to what she was doing or he planned to come forward and then he dies in that kind of a, a way it's beyond suspicious the thing about murder charges is there's no statute of limitations so for even for abduction cases and for there's statute of limitations that may get in the way here. But for this case, any disappearance that led to a death, any suspicious death can be reopened and charged. And I think that's probably going to happen. But remember, she has now pled guilty. So she's going to spend at least 30 years in prison. Wow. Yeah. And Allison, I just want to add, because I find it really, it's a little disturbing to me, how in the world is she able, the suspect, Anna Young, um, to enter into a plea deal without giving up where the bodies are? Isn't that something that should be part of the initial bargaining? No, it, I mean, why, why didn't that happen? To be honest with you, it's actually not mm -hmm. unusual that they're not going to give mm -hmm. it up because they're going to fight saying that they didn't do it to the very end. And ultimately, this is where the length of a case does matter. Memories fade. Witnesses are gone. Evidence is gone. So those are the kind of cases where you are going to plea because frankly, you don't know how your case is going to go. I mean, Lonnie and I have talked about this so many times. Uh, for a prosecutor, the longer the wait is, the harder the case is. Do you agree, Lonnie? I mean, for uh, us, absolutely. Great news, but for a prosecutor, it's a problem. 
Well, especially if it wasn't investigated correctly the first time at the time, you don't have any forensic evidence. And then, you know, memories are so faulty all the time. So you're really just getting verbal statements that have such a long passage of time. It's not very credible to put in front of a jury. It's very difficult. So Anna Young started unraveling at this point after her husband dies mysteriously at the junkyard with a car crushing him. So this is when the beatings apparently got worse. In 1992, as you said, uh, Lonnie, police in Florida investigate Anna Young for bathing a 12-year-old girl with bleach in a metal bathtub. Allegedly, several church members held her down while her skin burned. Mother Anna said that they were burning the evil out of her, leaving her skin blistered and burned. The girl was taken because of behavioral issues. That's what the, why the parents left her there. So after this whole tub incident, the girl was taken back to her room and her hands were strapped to her bed and her parents were called. Her parents arrive and see her in this condition. They immediately take her to the hospital. She has to be entered into a burn unit and those parents call the cops on her and that's when Anna Young gets charged, arrested, convicted. And as you guys said, then she's on the run, Lonnie, like forever, and finally serves six months after being caught in Illinois. So here's what I find really, really fascinating. After she does her time, she settles in Georgia. And I, I really want to hear from you, Dr. Judy, on this. And now she's reinvented herself. Anna Young is a church-going, nice lady who works as the private nurse taking care of elderly people under the radar, where she lived for a very long time. Now, are you going to tell me that she changed her ways? Oh, absolutely not. This is part of her deception. And she reinvented herself and aligned herself with yet another very respectable institution, which is medical care. And that also links to a person who you might attribute other positive traits like empathy, care, thoughtfulness. And this is how she's going to get more people to her corner, to get more people to follow her. All I want is the best for you and your family. I'm a nurse. You should trust me. I mean, think about some of the most trustworthy jobs out there in the world. Nurse, that's definitely one of them. So this was extremely calculated. So adding to the demise of this ex-cult leader, not only was her daughter turning her in, but about the same time, one of her adult victims, this would be the older brother of the little girl who was denied her medication, Oh my God, this, this to me is so chilling because John Neal, he is a six foot five Air Force veteran. He's a big guy. He's strong. Mm -hmm. He's tough. He spots her, the woman who inflicted pain on him and led to his sister's death. He spots her in the frozen food aisle of a Walmart in Marietta, Georgia. He says his heart was racing and he started feeling ill. He goes to the parking lot. He figures out what she's driving. He takes a picture of the license plate. And then he calls police back in Florida. And he says, I know you got a cold case because that was my little sister. I'm telling you, I have found her. I know where she is. And Florida reopens the case as to what happened in that cult. And, and I am, I'm just amazed because John Neal told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Mother Anna beat him mercilessly. She accused him of taking a candy 
And he says to this day, he never took the candy. And mm-hmm. that because he took it and then what, whatever, she was not going to hear him. She beat him so badly that this six foot five man raised his shirt to the reporters and the photographer to show the scars on his back from those beatings when he was a little boy. That to me mm. is so chilling. And he got a chance to speak in the courtroom at sentencing in defense of his little sister. And I, I, I mean, I, I know you all have so much to say about this, but Judy, I mean, think about it. Here's this grown man and he finally gets a chance to let that little boy say what he needs to say. And he says it in a courtroom where he is heard. And respected and believed and supported, hopefully. And the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder can go on for a lifetime. And I can only hope that that experience was healing for him. Every day when he looks at these scars, he must be reminded of what happened to him. And what happens with childhood victims of trauma is that they blame themselves. Children are more self-focused, not in a self-centered way, but they believe that they are the cause of everybody's problems. It's just like when parents get a divorce, children ask, is it my fault? It's like that. And children who grow up with trauma, they feel like it's their fault that these bad things happen to them. And I just can't imagine the kind of burden he had to carry throughout his life, thinking about what happened to him and trying to make sense of it. And perhaps if he had any contact with her or people who knew her, seeing how adored she was by the community. And that, again, just ripping a huge hole in his heart. Like, maybe I was the one who was the messed up one. And this is why it happened to me. And I just can't imagine what he went through. Lewis, would you find him very credible at this point? Obviously, the court did find him credible and so did um, prosecutors. But I mean, for me, this is this case, it, all of it is horrible, the loss of the children. But there's something about him. There's something about him that really tells this story. Yeah, no, I, I read that interview. It, I absolutely would find him credible. And especially the information that Joy Flocker, the daughter, brought forward. Um, I, I I watched that six, seven-minute interview uh, that the daughter did, uh, telling the story, the journey she took from the time she had the argument with her mom that made her change her mind and decide to go forward and report which she knew to law enforcement. And in that journey, she spoke to her siblings, other sisters, other family members who were absolutely non-supportive and did not want her to go forward. And they gave all types of reasons why they justified that. Um, that, that look how old mom is. You're not gonna make any difference in this world. That's a long time ago. We don't support you in this decision. We didn't see that you saw, I mean, and she still battled through that. I mean, it takes it takes a huge heart and a, and a huge, passion for the truth to step forward and make those kind of statements against your own mother and not just another adult, but imagine neighbors not wanting to report it. Imagine what the daughters felt. Um, so yeah, I find him extremely credible. Those scars aren't just physical, but obviously emotional. Yeah. So sad. Anyone else want to chime in on this one? Mm. I, I do. And here's the thing about victim impact statements. Uh, for the most part, you know, when I'm sitting next to a defendant, they may be listening, they may not be, but the judge is listening and the victim impact statement often occurs right before sentencing. So not only is it therapeutic for the person to be able to address the wrongdoer, to address the victim, uh, excuse me, to address the defendant, but the judge hears it. And when the judge can put a, a 
story and a crime together with an actual person who has lived it and been victimized, especially when it's been a plea, right? If there's not been a trial, so the judge really has never heard directly from this victim. But if there's been a plea and the judge hears it, um, it resonates with them and they connect this crime with a victim that has now has to live with it. And it impacts the sentence every single time. And victims not only feel that they're being heard, but their words are adding to the years in prison this person gets. So I think it's very powerful for victims to speak up and they need to know that the justice system wants them and needs them to play a role in a prosecution. And whatever judge is hearing it, um, it's different when it comes from a transcript or from a DA's mouth. When the victim says those words, um, it makes a difference in the outcome of the case. Well, and especially in a case like this where the crimes are so far in the past, mm-hmm. it's easier, like especially Allison, as you point out, because there was no trial the judge is just looking back at, oh, well, years ago, you know, a child was hurt. That's bad. But not taking into account all of the years of damage since then. And when you have this grown man standing in front of you and saying it wasn't just then, it's everything that's happened since then. And all of that should be taken into account for the punishment. I will say in this case, the judge did do one thing that I, I get upset about as a prosecutor and just as a person looking at the value of human life. And that is Uh, He sentenced um, her to 30 years on one murder, on the murder, and then 15 years on the manslaughter, but he ran them concurrent together. So she's not really getting extra time. And in my mind, that's always like, you have two lives here, two dead children. They both need to be Mm -hmm. accounted for in that time given. Don't, you don't get a deal here. It's not too much. But Lonnie, that that goes back to what I was telling you or what we were talking about with why why there would be a plea in the case and why the the district attorney would offer anything. And I think that there probably was some weaknesses in the case. I mean, some real weaknesses in the manslaughter charge um, in proving up the case. That, that would be my hunch. Yeah. I, there might've been a plea deal worked out with the prosecutor. It also might be, Oh, she's so old, you know, 30 years is plenty. Mm. There's a lot of reasons why it goes into it, but just for the message that it sends to the victims, I think it's important to say, hey, look, they both are equally, you know, uh, worthy of being, they're, they're, they're being a, a consequence. For well, it. John Neal, a victim and a survivor, told WEAR-TV after the sentencing how he felt about this. Let's play the clip. I feel like we got justice 100% because I, I often wondered if I would ever get justice, anything, any accountability. You know, I know God holds everybody accountable. I know that was coming, but... To see it and be able to live it, it's just wonderful. It's a blessing. Given that this man was abused in the name of God, I I find it very interesting that he in his heart believes that God will always hold her accountable and that he finds some kind of peace here. So it's almost as if she, Dr. Judy, I don't think that she managed to kill his spirit and whatever spirituality and religious beliefs that he could possibly have later in life, that somehow he found a path where he could believe and permit another being, a spiritual being in, and she didn't take that from him. 
You're right, Anna. I mean, it's good that he still can hold on to his spirituality. It seems like it's a very positive source for him. It's something that's helping him to make sense of everything because he wasn't able to control what was happening. And, and I think that sometimes you do see cases, though, where it really just taints the individual's entire worldview. And they run away from any idea of God. There is no God. God would not have allowed this to happen. And it, it does appear that that spirituality is very important to him and that he's able to make sense of it. And also now there is a conclusion. And I think that that is what's so important about this is that there is a closure. There is a tangible thing. She has been sentenced. I can move on. That was my closure. Now I can do my own individual healing process outside of that. And I think that that is what is so helpful for him specifically and also for other victims when they see that their perpetrator is actually being served a sentence that feels justified. Well, I think we're going to find out that there are more cases that will be investigated as a result of her plea and this case. It may have been a small cult, but damn, it was a dangerous one. When I read this, we had a, a great family discussion. And so I just want our listeners to think about this. You know, would you turn in your parent knowing that they did a horrible thing? Would you turn in your child knowing that they did a horrible thing. Lewis is right. The amount of courage that this that it took for her daughter when all the rest of the siblings were basically against her. But it's just such an amazing discussion. This person raised you for better or for worse. Are you going to be the reason that they spend the rest of their life in prison? Well, I think the, her daughter was worried about her own child. And I think she looked at herself and said, a real mother protects their children. And if that means I have to turn on my own mother to protect my child, so be it. That's, you know, that's a tough one. I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, team, our second case comes out of Charlottesville, Virginia. This is a case where a murder suspect was convicted without the victim's body. And now, seven years later, the remains of the victim have been found to me, it's one of the most interesting cases of its kind that I've seen in a long time because, first of all, I'm curious about the impact, if any, on that murder conviction. And, of course, now the family, even though they got the conviction, they can truly, truly move on and, and give their daughter a proper burial. This is the case of 17-year-old Alexis Murphy of Virginia. She vanished from a gas station in 2013. Her remains were found this last December, December 2020, but police have only now publicly released this information. And her remains were found about five miles from where she was last seen. And this is a small community, which for me makes me think, oh my God, for all these years, Family and friends have literally been driving by Alexis's remains the entire time. It's like, ah, I, I, I don't know. I just, Judy, that makes me think that when the family got the information that we found her, they did the forensic in, fe in February, they determined absolutely this is, you know, this is who it is. These are her remains. That must have been really hard. Absolutely. And then people are sort of racking their brains, thinking about all the memories that they had in that exact little community and how they could have, you know, essentially not caught that this was hiding in plain sight. But it is one of the things that can happen sometimes with small communities that that is actually the most sensical place to hide because nobody would actually think about that, that it's not somewhere, you know, two, three hours, you know, into the ether. It's right in their neighborhood. 
So the Nelson County Sheriff's Office said that they got the positive ID on February 5th. And when they got that information, they wanted the Murphy family to have time to process this because that's definitely going to take time. And they also wanted them to have a moment to be able to make arrangements for her in private before the media descended on her, because obviously it's a very big case. It was a very prominent case, got a lot of headlines. And at the end of the day, this is a private a private moment. So I do appreciate the fact that they gave them that little bit of time. Let's get into the facts of the case. Alexis vanished on the evening of August 3rd, 2013, after stopping at a Liberty gas station in Lovingston, and she was spotted there on surveillance footage. She was headed to Lynchburg. This is what her family told Crime Watch Daily. Crime Watch Daily covered this extensively. She was going to buy hair extensions because she was getting ready for some photographs. Beautiful young woman Alexis was. She was like a maven and just on social media. She had thousands of followers. You know, this is this is someone who um, had a great spirit about her, right? And it was all captured on social media. And she had a midnight curfew and she didn't come home. And we all know as parents that that's like, wow, that's it. That is the scariest moment on life in life when your child doesn't come home. A few days later, her white Nissan, which was really her dad's car, was found abandoned not far from that gas station where she was last seen. Now, that gas station is considered like a teen hangout, you know, the kind of place everybody goes, gets a Slurpee, whatever, you know, and hangs out. People at the gas station remember seeing Alexis talking to an older white man with a tattoo on his neck, a tattoo of Daffy Duck. Security cameras capture the man holding the door for Alexis as she's walking in and out, and then... They see him kind of following her as far as, you know, their interactions inside and out. Surveillance footage also showed Alexis's white car leaving the parking lot and the man's very unique camouflaged SUV. And they were heading away from Lynchburg where she was supposedly headed. And police say that Alexis's phone was pinging at a location of an abandoned property Here's what the prosecutor, Anthony Martin, told Crime Watch Daily about how they zeroed in on the suspect. We determined that her cell phone was located um, in an area about maybe one mile north of that gas station. And when FBI agents and Virginia State Police swarmed the area of the cell phone's location... It was abandoned property. It was an old house uh, right beside Route 29, right along the main highway. Um, of course, since it was in the summertime, there's so much vegetation, you know, five feet away from the road, you're in the shadows. And parked within the overgrown brush. A very conspicuous camouflage suburban that was pulled also into that area. Quickly, detectives are greeted by a familiar face. He had a very large tattoo on his neck of Daffy Duck. Investigators believe he's the same man on the surveillance tape of the gas station who held the door for Alexis. He met them at the beginning of the property, and he certainly didn't say anything directly, you know, that would implicate him. But the creepy factor is about to go off the charts when seasoned detectives approach his camper. He had a video camera on top of his camper pointing out to the driveway. And just his general demeanor, um, he was... Normal at first. He's the kind of person that makes the hair on your neck stand up, I guess is the best way I can put it. The man identifies himself as Randy Taylor. 
So it's at that location where they found the man with the tattoo on his neck identified as Randy Taylor, who lived in that camper on that property. Police say that Randy Taylor gave them permission to enter the camper. And that's when they spot a torn fingernail, like a little diamond stud. And they took it and started testing it for DNA. And it came back as Alexis's DNA. But there's a lot more than that, obviously. Guys, what do you think? I'm, I'm enthralled with how they found the, sen- the cell phone because I think it's per- some pretty darn good investigative work, not just the pinging, which is what you usually do, but someone had the bright idea to go and, and retrieve a canine from the local correctional facility where they specialize in finding cell phones within the prison system itself. Uh, when you work around dogs like that that are specialized in a certain sense, um, it, it's phenomenal what they can do. And my understanding is that's how they would actually find the actual phone is by using one of those dogs, which led them to the trailer. So excellent work. And I'm also wondering why when they found, when they were allowed to come into the trailer, the initial investigators and speak with the suspect with a duck on his neck, thank goodness. And they found jewelry, the ring, they found a hair strand and they found a fingernail that appeared to be ripped off, all consistent with the victim I'm sure they have a reason for this, but I I really want to know why they didn't freeze the scene at that point and obtain a search warrant. I'm shocked that they didn't, because from when I read, they came back at a later time. And thank God this clown, Mr. Taylor, wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, uh, that he didn't work harder to hide the evidence. In fact, he probably felt he was in free and clear. They convinced them. Um, but I mean, that not just searching the trailer, but that entire property should have been saturated with law enforcement. Um, hopefully I, they had a good reason for I doing have, this. One. I have to jump in and I'm so happy that you said that, Lewis, because I was actually going to ask you, in my mind, the minute that they have the cell phone, okay, they have the cell phone, they have the description of the, the camper, which is which is sort of unique or the, the with the camo siding. They have the description matching with, you know, this tattoo. Don't they have enough to detain him then? How are they not securing a warrant? Because if you're saying, well, he gave me permission to go in, you're always going to run the risk that he says, no, I never gave them permission. How do you not secure the area, obtain a search warrant, go in like gangbusters, sort of like a strange thing they, that they'd have to argue that it was in plain sight, that this earring that is somehow lodged in the carpet, they immediately see it. They've got the fingernail. They've got the, the hair extension. And thankfully, this guy is so lazy or so arrogant that when they finally come back, they find the bloody shirt. But if I'm him, because that would have been gone real quick, real quick, if it's a smarter criminal. And I just, I still to this day, and then Lonnie, we're going to get into whether you'd prosecute someone with no body, which I know you would. But I, to this day, I don't understand how they didn't immediately detain him. They had the probable cause to do it and they didn't uh, get a search warrant. Shocking. That, that's bad policing. Sorry. Lonnie, what do you think? Well, well, I, I agree. That's the way it should have been done. It was just a huge fluke and a, the risk they took doing it the way they did for all of the evidence to be wiped out at that point. Uh, you know, like Allison said, anyone else probably would have gotten rid of it. And then they ended up finding a lot more evidence than this, you know, in the second search that really helped the case. So uh, thank heavens 
he didn't move anything. Yeah, the the um, second search was amazing. When they came back with a search warrant, they find underneath the sofa, right? Stuffed underneath the sofa, this blue bloodstained t-shirt. The guy, Taylor, was wearing the uh, blue shirt just like that in the surveillance video. And hair extensions, artificial eyelashes. And they tested that for DNA. And that blood on that shirt was Alexis's. The hair extension and the eyelashes matched Alexis's DNA. There's no explanation for that being there. Well, Anna, I would say that it actually is quite common for some criminals to really relish in this fact that they have memento of their crimes. And the mementos reminds them of what they did. It makes them feel powerful. It creates an object for fantasies, future fantasies about exactly what they did. You know, there's a certain high that they actually receive from doing these horrible things. And you can see it in the brain images of some of these criminals. That essentially gives them stimulation. It's like a reward system. It's like pinging the way that somebody's brain might ping when they win something at a casino. And so this is not at all surprising to me that he would actually be hoarding these items for later consumption. And at the same time, some criminals just think that they're way too smart and that they can outsmart everybody. And it's also part of this game and this ruse that they're playing. Oh, let's see if the police can still tie me to this, even though I have all of this evidence around. So, I mean, it's, it's stupid, but in this case, I'm really happy that he was so stupid. <laughs> yes, what's amazing is part of that search warrant getting to the memento part here and and his brain. So they found this book of uh, pornographic photos of women and he had taken other pictures of other women and taped them on top of the bodies of these women. And at least one of those women whose picture was taped on was the daughter of a coworker of his. Okay. Mm. And the, the people who worked at the video rental place or whatever, or the porn shop, they recognized him as a regular. So, you know, I guess one of the theories was, uh, and he had visited the shop right before Alexis's disappearance was there, was something building up in him? Was this like the beginnings of, of getting ready for, for an attack? I, Allison, you're, you're, uh, go. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you something. If I'm the attorney, that stuff stays out. That is totally irrelevant. A lot of people go to porn shops, but I am going to say this, and this is where I want to get into it with Lonnie. Lonnie is going to prosecute this case, okay? Because in my mind, because without a body, because yeah. that kind of the blood matching hers. Her eyelashes, her extensions, uh, the earring, okay? You're going to put that in front of a jury and say, we all know the logical conclusion, okay? I'm going to say, as every defense attorney is going to say, guys, how can you convict someone? That person may walk through the door right now. We don't know that they're dead. How can you have how can you condemn someone to spend the rest of their life in prison or get the death penalty when we don't even know there's been a murder? And you know what, Anna? I'm gonna lose. On this case, I'm gonna <laughs> lose. And Lonnie knows it because every juror is gonna sit there and say, wait, he should be rewarded for hiding a body so well that no one can find it. Am I wrong, Lonnie? No. And here's the thing. No body cases are difficult just for that reason, because besides having to prove the actual 
murder part of it, you first have to prove that this person is actually dead, which if you have a body, you don't have to worry about that. And it does open up this whole line of argument for the defense to say, this person could have just run away. This person could have met somebody on the internet, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of gets you into a little bit of the victim's life. But here in this case, you have a young girl She's getting ready to take her senior pictures in a few days. That's why she's going to get the extensions. And she's um, very active in school. She's just about to start her senior year. She's the co-captain of the volleyball team. She plays basketball. She wants to play volleyball in college. I mean, she has got her life in order. She's got plans. Um, she has friends. She has a big family. She's very active on social media. And then all of that just goes dark. No more on social media, the phone activity, no calls to her family, which is very common. She's always um, staying in touch with them. So there's a lot of evidence in this case that there is something unusual that she's not alive because everything just literally stopped. And then the other thing you have to have is you have to have a pretty strong case for the actual murder and the killing and linking this person to it. And all of this forensic evidence that you have that was found in this guy's camper, you know, the eyelashes and the torn fingernail, um, and the hair extension shows a really strong struggle went on. This was not just a, you know, a quick little whatever. There was a, there was a lot of struggle going on. And she was very athletic. Um, and her uh, grand aunt was interviewed. And she said her mother said that they had actually talked about what will you do if someone attacks you or something like this happens. And she said, I will fight. And that's exactly what happened in there. You can tell that she fought for her life. Uh, and so it, it's a strong case, and um, yes, it, I you're going to hey, win that Anna, because Anna, that was that was uh, that was her summation. Okay, that was her closing <laughs> statement. It was a good that's, one. <laughs> that's when I pack up my bag and I go. Well, that's what happened. He's convicted. And it's interesting because Randy Taylor was first arrested just on abduction charges, right? Because the prosecutor in Virginia, he said, we just don't do no body murder cases. It's it's very rare. So he needed time to figure this out. Also, they're waiting on the DNA to come back. And that's when he said, that's it. I'm going to go for it. And then he charged him then with the murder case. And then in 2014, a jury convicted him of Alexis's murder, and he was given two life sentences. Okay. So my question now to you is, all right, is there any chance that the finding of Alex's remains could in any way change this conviction? No. 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 I mean, if he was wrongly accused, right, if he was wrongly accused, and something comes up where uh, the DNA doesn't match or something like that. But I want you to go back. He's given two life sentences. Before he's sentenced, he says, you know what? I'm going to confess. Give me 20 years and I'll tell you where the bodies are. At that point, her family, the, the prosecutor meets with her family. And I, and I sort of love this. They say, of course, we want to know. Of course, we want to know where that body is. Of course, we do. Selfishly, we need to know as a family, but more importantly, we need to make sure that he spends the rest of his life in prison so he doesn't do this to anybody else, because the minute he gets out, he's doing it again. So they actually went to what is the best, what is the public good here? 
And for the protection of the public, they forewent the idea of having a final resting place for their precious child so that this guy would stay behind bars forever. And I think that's a huge uh, statement about that family, right? Because so many families would do anything to be able to know where their loved one was. And they said even after this, because there was no body, they still have this idea in their head that maybe she's still out there. And on anniversaries after the conviction, they would still get together and, and put up missing posters and phone numbers to call if you saw her. I mean, they still were living in that limbo, which they could have resolved if they had you know, agreed to give this guy a deal of 20 years. But the fact that they were looking at other potential victims out there, other families in their situation and put their potential pain before theirs, I thought was so altruistic of them. Yeah. Amazing, And family. I think it's a different type of closure that the family got to have. It's almost in service of even a greater purpose so that her horrible tragedy gets to have some greater meaning. And it is a different type of coping, but it is a very selfless kind of coping. And uh, I, I really, I really hope that the family is going to take some time and just really, really understand, you know, not only the sacrifices that they made, but you know, again, just honor the memory of her as a whole person. I think sometimes when these cases become investigated, everything gets kind of uh, scrutinized and they just become this mystery to be solved. And you start to diminish this person down to a mystery rather than really appreciating the whole person. And I just hope that the entire community will continue to remember her for who she is. Yeah, I, I like the fact that uh, Mr. Taylor's offer to point to the body really just solidified to anyone that had doubt uh, whether he was guilty yes. or not. Yes, Done absolutely. deal. Great point. Yes. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, she's back home with her family and they've been able to give her a proper burial now. I took a look at Sheriff of Nelson County's uh, last interview he gave to the media about a week ago discussing how the body was located. Well, he really didn't say how it was located, but he was peppered for about 20 minutes uh, how was the body found? Where was it? And he worked really, really hard to make sure that he did not divulge that information. And he put it on the fact that they're trying to respect the family and they want and they've closed that aspect, that lane um, that she has been found. The family is, is closing this chapter. But he left it wide open um, <laughs> because there's other there was another serial murderer in that area. And there was connection potentially to that same property where it may involve other homicides. We don't know that yet. He left that wide open. So in order to process a scene like that, when you have when you're recovering skeletal remains, you have to bring in a, a forensic anthropologist. And if you've ever seen those in progress at a homicide scene where, you're, where you found a body has been missing for a long period of time, it's entailed. It takes a lot of time. And some of the things that they're trying to do when they recover the skeletal remains uh, in a hole, not from a burial, but they were trying to hide that body. You're trying to identify, first of all, how many victims are in there? If there's more than one, you're trying to figure out if the body has been moved from one place to this location, multiple locations. If our suspect had this uh, person buried somewhere else or received assistance in moving this body uh, multiple times while he was being investigated. It's a slow process and it's very difficult to hide the big canopy, the tent and, and the coroner's office coming in and out and, and the lights at night. I mean, so I think that's going to come out eventually. I don't think that 
ask that part of the case is closed yet. I think there's more going on there, especially how the body was discovered. Um, how did they, how did they get that information? I think it's a big factor here that will be answered at some point. Lewis, can I also add, by the way, one yes, of the reasons they may not be disclosing, and you know this, is if that body is right near that trailer, uh, they're gonna there's gonna be a lot of questions and a lot a lot of scrutiny over how did you not find her all these years? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. question a good question to ask. Absolutely, reason, more than reasonable. Yes. Thank you, Allison. Now it's time for our comment section. These are the crimes you all are talking about, and we have a special guest on this 100th episode. We welcome back Owen Michael. Owen launched True Crime Daily, the podcast. 100, yes, applause. Yay! Yay! Hello, all. Thank you. Hi, Owen. Good Good to to be here. Hello. Nice to see you. Congratulations on the the 100th episode, Anna. Thank you for taking us there. Oh, my God. Oh, and you started this whole thing with Billy Jensen. You guys did the first episode ever. I'm just curious, like, how have you seen the progression and how it because you all you still work with us. You're, you're part of the team. You right. get this. You manage everything. You're you are the wizard behind the curtain getting everything done. <laughs> well, so. I am. A, 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 thankfully, I'm a better writer than I am a, a camera person uh, in, in front of the camera. So I think this has worked out quite a bit better with the uh, the quality of the host and, of course, the guests and everyone else. And over this uh, crazy year that we've had, uh, I've enjoyed kind of peeking into people's living rooms and checking everything out. <laughs> of course, I'm keeping the brand here uh, for the True Crime Daily just because uh, my place is not quite as fancy and um, I'm down with the brand, of course. But uh, it's been a good year and uh, I can't believe we're at 100 episodes. Yeah, you're responsible for about half of all those episodes. I'm curious, on that first day that you said, okay, we're going to do a podcast, you and Billy Jensen, like... Did you have a format? Did you know what you were going to do? Did you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, uh, so I had a, I sort of came up with the structure. Billy was more of the, he's, he was much more of the uh, podcast guy. He's been on other podcasts in the past and knew kind of the, uh, how the rhythms of it and that kind of thing. Whereas I was kind of came up with the, the structure and the skeleton of the thing. Um, the first day I remember doing it though, I think we didn't even record it on camera and we were just sort of in a darkened recording booth. And I thought, Oh, this is kind of cool. Like I, I, I could do radio. I have a face for radio. Um, <laughs> but then once we kind of went into the camera kind of thing, it was a, it was a whole different entity and, uh, I'm glad to, it got handed off nicely. Oh, well, you're still part of the team. We're so glad you're here. And so that's why you're going to do the comment section. Take it away, Owen. Well, we have some work-related stuff uh, this week because, you know, everybody's dealing with work-related issues, of course, um, but at least you're not this guy. A man was found by police officers in Arizona with his hands bound behind his back with a belt and a bandana stuffed in his mouth, kind of in the middle of the desert uh, near outside of Phoenix. The man told police he had been abducted and assaulted. He said he was kidnapped by two masked men who hit him in his head, knocked him unconscious. Uh, According to Coolidge Police in Arizona, Brandon Sewells, 19, also told uh, cops that he was kidnapped because of a large amount of money his father had hidden around town. Sewells told cops he was driven around in a vehicle before he was dumped in the area where he was found by the officers. Detectives investigated, uh, investigated and determined Sewell's made up the story, quote, as an excuse to get out of work. 
Oh my God. Was, uh, yeah, he was arrested and charged with filing a false re- uh, police report. And he was then fired from his job at the tire store. <laughs> so uh, Robin S says, if you have to pretend to be kidnapped for a day off, it's time to get a different job. I agree. John M says, uh, just think if he was that committed to his job, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, all that energy towards work would have been the employee of the month. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Chelsea S says, I mean, it worked. Success. Uh, out of a job and a, and a police record now. So, um, but you know, he's making national news. So maybe he'll, uh, he'll get a gig on, uh, on, on some national TV show. Or, well, not uh, here. No, yes. not I here at not. crime, at True Crime Daily. I have a question, <laughs> though, you guys, because I saw the photo and we're going to put it up for everybody where you see him kind of in the dirt and you see his hands behind his back mm-hmm. and the gag in his mouth. I mean, I, I, I'm just curious, would cops have thought right away that he did this himself or would they have thought, you know, wait a minute, this sounds really fishy. And what a stupid plan. I was a 19 year old, uh, um, never do well at the, at the time. And, uh, I would just think that this guy probably was sending out all sorts of uh, warning signals to cops who probably determined, uh, this guy is full of it. Um, like you said, the, the photo, he's all dusty and he's kind of, uh, looks a little beat up, but, um, I'm pretty sure sharp eyed officers could, uh, kind of, they didn't need a whole lot of investigating to figure this one out. Oh I know. God. I want more details. Like, does he have an accomplice? Did he try to tie himself up? And if so, how good was the binding? I mean, I just have so, so many questions, but I, obviously this person uh, has enough of a sense to put some crazy plan like this together. So you just have to wonder what was his job and what was he doing there? And what was his day-to-day task? I just wonder if he had applied this level of, you know, slight ingenuity to his work where he'd be by now. No, he worked at a tire store, right? And he drove around collecting parts during the day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't understand why you don't just do the, you know, it always worked for me, you know, uh, uh, calling in the, uh, I'm a little too ill <laughs> yeah. today, I can't come in. I mean, or, the best reason we all have right now is COVID. Just tell people true. you might have COVID this and don't true. go to work. That's true. Right, they can't uh, he, fire you for that. Yeah, he wanted special attention and he got it. It's, the, it's not the first time we've seen somebody fake being a victim. And, and fake being kidnapped or fake being tied up. It happens more than you would think. I, I just hope in this case, he, uh, they understand, he understands specifically. He's a young man. He can still be tuned up a little bit. Uh, the, the amount of money and hours that goes into uh, investigating crime and an allegation like that. Uh, and I hope he's responsible uh, to some degree. Can I just say, um, as a criminal defense attorney, I will represent most people. This guy just may be too dumb for me to represent him. Sorry. <laughs> In his defense, as someone, as another commenter said, uh, at 19, your prefrontal or your prefrontal cortex is not quite developed. So uh, you know, True. lots of 19-year-old men make uh, very, very poor decisions. Have poor decision-making skills. I can attest to that uh, personally. So, uh, Brendan, good luck on your next job. I guess. Yep. <laughs> well, everyone, that is our one hundredth episode. I'm so glad that you are all here. You're all special. You're all part of the team. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to work with all of you. And some some people may not know that some of us have worked together, like obviously Lonnie and Allison have, but Owen and I worked together at Crime Watch Daily for years. That's how I met Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um 
Allison I knew way before I met Judy here on the podcast and Lonnie and I have known each other also previously. So uh, it's just wonderful to have all those worlds and paths just kind of come together. It's been a pleasure. Now, where can people follow all of you? Allison, if they need a defense attorney, even if they are stupid, where can they find you? <laughs> also, no, and it really, I will represent, you know, that's what I do. Uh, my my law practice is Allison Treesel and Sherman Oaks. I'm the legal expert at KTLA and I'm the legal expert at Access Hollywood. Okay, Lewis, who spends most of your free time rescuing people and helping them. You do so much work. You have a private investigation firm. You do an amazing amount of pro bono work as well. Where can people find you, Lewis? Thanks, Anna. You can find us, my entire social media footprint at getbitinvestigations.com. So I just want to add, it's a pleasure uh, watching all of you work. Uh, it's an incredible podcast, and I think that as a whole, uh, you guys are all participating in making a, a, a positive difference uh, in true crime, and that's not easy to do, so thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Okay, Lonnie, you're always all over Oxygen with 100 shows. <laughs> Where can people find you, and what's your next project? I'm on social media and Instagram, Twitter, Facebook under Lonnie Coombs, and also you can see my true crime shows on Oxygen.com. Um, and I just want to say, too, here right now, I'm looking at some of my favorite people in the true crime world. So it's been such a pleasure today to just, you know, I love to talk about crime. And um, this has just been pure oh. fun. So oh, thanks absolutely. For me. Dr. Judy, I'm so excited. She's got this hit show on Netflix right now. And I know you've got a new true crime podcast coming out. Judy, where can people find you and what are your projects? Well, thank you so much. And Anna, again, it was an honor to be here and be here among such esteemed colleagues. I actually learned a lot today. And uh, I just so appreciate you bringing me into this wonderful group. So yes, you can catch me on Netflix crime scene, The Vanishing of the CISO Hotel. It was trending number one since it's been released. So that's been amazing. And I really feel like it has made a lot of positive difference in the true crime space because of the arc of the story and the important social justice themes that were touched upon without getting into too many spoilers. Um, You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Judy Ho. I also have a Twitter at Dr. Judy Ho and a Facebook. Facebook page. My website is drjudyho.com. And I am releasing a limited series on my podcast where I delve into some of the true crime themes. And right now I'm releasing this special edition series based on the Netflix true crime show that I was just a part of. And I'm going to be talking to the director next week, Joe Berger, And I'm just really, really excited. So thank you so much for shouting that out, Anna. Appreciate it. Oh, you. absolutely. And for those of you who don't follow Dr. Judy, you really should follow her on Instagram because every day she has either an affirmation or a list of things that you can do to either make your day better, be more positive, find your way out of a dark space. I tell you, she does it in the most creative ways. And Judy, you know, I follow your advice and I'll, and yes. I'll, you know, like on, on Valentine's day, Dr. Judy said, I want you to text five people right now and tell them that you just, you're thankful for them and you appreciate them. She also said, I'd love it better if you called them, but I'll settle for a text. <laughs> and I just, it's those little things, Judy, and you do it um, with such ease, such grace and such kindness that I so appreciate you. You've made a huge difference in my life every single day through your account. Oh, thank you. And I always love reading when you do them and you tell me what that experience was like. So thanks for all your support. Of course, now I feel horrible that I didn't text any of you. (laughs) 
those special five people. They're all sitting there saying, I didn't get a text. <laughs> all right. And Owen, 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 where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on truecrimedaily.com. Of course, I'd encourage you to uh, check out our site. And of course, on social, we're on, uh, you can look us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all of our good content to look up uh, True Crime Daily. And uh, I'm Owen J. Michael on Twitter, uh, but it's not particularly crime related. It's the random musings of a, of an obscure Los Angeles resident. So um, I'd encourage everybody to check us out on uh, truecrimedaily.com. Absolutely. And I want to take the time to thank all of our subscribers, listeners, and viewers around the country and around the world. I love how interactive you are with me on social media and on YouTube. You make me a better reporter. You make me a better storyteller because you call me on stuff that's wrong. If I, if I have a fact wrong, I'm horrible with geography. You call me on that. If I mispronounce something, you tell me how to pronounce it. And I know when it comes to math, I do a terrible job. <laughs> so I so appreciate it when you do that or you fill in the gaps. You've been following the story and you know a detail or it happened down the street from you and you add that. I love the fact that you do that. The other thing is you educate me. We, we had a, a man who survived a kidnapping, you know, very, very big case. And some of you wrote to me and said, you know what? Stop calling him a victim. He is a survivor. And I heard you. I really, really heard you on that. So thank you so much for educating me because I'm still growing. And I want to thank the entire Warner Brothers team that works with us. It is a tiny team, which is why I can thank them now in a very short list who put this together. Special thanks to Sophie Liddell. Owen Michael, Bob Moeller, Stephanie Schwartz, Moses Venegas, Richard Jory, David Song, and Rodney Vallow. Thank you, all of you, for making this happen. Of course, you can always find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, on YouTube, and get updates, as Owen says, from truecrimedaily.com. He's in charge of that newsletter he's going to send you out. But Owen is going to take us out with the phrase that he coined on episode number one. Don't do crimes. Done. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>